the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello. This week's edition of the podcast comes to us from Stamford, Connecticut in the United States, which is probably not the first place you would think of when it comes to shipping. But for historic reasons, this commuter belt part of the US East Coast is where the country's shipping executives clustered after they moved out of New York in the 1970s. And so the Connecticut Maritime Association was born, and for the last 30 years or more, they've had an annual conference which brings in international and local maritime guests to discuss the state of the industry. It's a social event, as much as it is a business one, and traditionally it ends with a gala dinner on the Thursday evening, at which a commodore is appointed and forced to wear a silly hat. This year, cousins Cesar and Paolo D'Amico, ship owners of the Milan-listed D'Amico Shipping Group, were the honoured recipients of said silly hat, and by all accounts, as any good Italian would, they wore it with some style. Our markets editor and analyst, Michelle Vizi bockman was out there wearing the Lois List hat this year. And in between offering her considered opinion on millinery style choices, she was bothering the great and the good for insights on how the industry is shaping up right now. This being America, and with tanker rates hitting about 100,000 a day for the biggest ships, and bulk carriers not doing too bad on the rebound as well, she was confronted with a room full of smiling faces for once. Not a normal situation for Michelle, but she managed to plough on through and grab two of them to sit around the Loiseless microphone for a quick chat. So our first interview this week is with Mark O'Neill, Chief Executive of Columbia Ship Management, which manages around 400 ships worldwide and is well regarded as one of the top performing companies in its sector. He stirred the pot a little at CMA at one of the forums by promoting the continued role of fossil fuels and carbon capture and storage. Our second guest is a very chirpy Loie Zabrocki, Chief Executive and President of International Seaways, the New York-listed owner of a fleet of 77 product and crew tankers. They reported $380 million in profits last year. You'll find out why Lois is so happy in the second half of this week's edition, but, spoiler alert, it's partly due to that. Mostly it relates to tanker owners and their supply discipline. Despite earning quite so much money and no end in sight for the cash machine running out in the tanker sector, they're not going out and spoiling it by ordering new tonnage at shipyards. Box listeners take heed. Anyway, first up, it's Mark O'Neill, who told Michelle that shipping was sleepwalking its way to oblivion by not acknowledging the role of fossil fuels in its decarbonising future. So I'm speaking with Mark O'Neill, Chief Executive of the Columbia Group. Mark, you had some, dare I say, controversial comments to, to make at the Connecticut Maritime Association about the role of conventional fuels in shipping's future. Can you elaborate on your views and what you said? Yes, good morning, Michelle. Um, what I said is that uh, I foresee a, a future in which fossil fuels will play a continually important part, probably the dominant part, uh, for the foreseeable future in the, the maritime sector, but not just in the maritime sector, in other sectors as well. Uh, and the reason I say that is we are too easily equating decarbonization with de-fossil fuel. 
and there is perf the perfect possibility that fossil fuels can be used in a more environmentally friendly, friendly way going forward, uh, that there can be some form of capture, carbon capture of, of those fossil fuels or carbon reduction of those fossil fuels to the extent that they become sustainable, inverted commas, and environmentally friendly. The future fuel mix for the maritime sector and for other sectors will include fossil fuels in a more environmentally friendly way as well as ammonia methanol hydrogen uh, lng and all the other good uh, alternatives that we see but I, my point that i made uh, at yesterday's uh, meeting was that it's it's perhaps short-sighted or, or or not not an intelligent debate simply to rule out the use of fossil fuels for the for the foreseeable future. Do we really believe in the geopolitical situation that we face uh, that uh, uh, the developing world can afford to rule out the use of fossil fuels in maritime or any other sector? Is simply not simply not going to happen. We only need one more. Uh, uh, ingredient in the geopolitical mix to further complicate and you, you, you do set back this green agenda considerably. So what's motivated you to speak out now in a week where the IMO is having its intersessional working group on greenhouse gas emission reductions and in the EU uh, the fuel EU maritime trilogue is coming to an end. What, why now are you raising this point? I, I, I've always been I've always been of this opinion and I think that the, the problem with shipping uh, and it sort of links a previous point I made at a previous conference that shipping doesn't have a single voice uh, and we have a multitude of different conventions a multitude of different associations all representing their members as ably uh, as they possibly can but all coming out with slightly different messages on the same theme we are blindly following this decarbonization discussion where the, 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 the essence of that is de-fossil fuel. It's not. Decarbonization does not mean take out fossil fuels. It means carbon reduction, uh, carbon elimination, but fossil fuels are still there. Shipping has to try to influence as much as it can this debate. And I don't feel as though uh, it is doing that. It is being, um, it is kowtowing perhaps to other uh, interests in the overall logistics framework and not speaking for itself. Shipping needs to say, I'm sorry, a future without fossil fuels is simply not credible. It's simply not an intelligent debate where we have a, a, an asset that we're investing in that has a 20, 25 year time span and that no one can tell us at the moment what the, the, the fuel of the future is. So that's why I think it's really, really important that, that, that shipping tries to speak with one voice, tries to widen this debate on decarbonisation. And, and actually decarbonisation is about reducing carbon or eliminating carbon. It's not about uh, uh, getting rid of fossil fuels and being realistic, telling the world that shipping can't operate without fossil fuels. I think, I don't think, I don't think uh, there's a cynical hijacking of the debate. I think um, all of these groups have, um, you know, led their various um, members and, and members' interests very ably and very genuinely and honestly. But I think um, what, we have, what we have seen is that the decarbonisation debate in the maritime sector has been led by the the largest of the the shipping interests, where those shipping interests are probably more logistic companies, if you look at them in the round, and that's not to take away their ship owner credentials, because they're probably the largest ship owners as well, but probably more logistics companies that have different uh, global and different commercial interests. And therefore, a, a, 
a definition of decarbonisation which which equates to zero fossil fuel may be to their benefits, genuine benefits and legitimate benefits, but not to the pure ship owner. Uh, if we take if we take some of the big liner companies, it's, it is not that difficult uh, to foresee a, a future where the liner companies are able to set up fueling stations for these alternative fuels around the world, which suit their liner purposes, and therefore their their engagement in the decarbonisation debate is very, very different from the ship owner that trades in obscure ports around India or Africa where there is no chance of ever being a bunkering port for methanol fueled ships or, or, or ammonia ships. So we've got to we've got to look at shipping in its purest form and ship owning in its purest form and have the uh, have a, that interest and those interests represented in in this debate as well, not just the big logistics companies it may be that it's an academic argument because they you know i think the shipping more and more is being subsumed into the overall logistics sector maybe that's a good thing uh, that, that that happens but for the moment shipping is a distinct interest and we have to push and speak with one voice as loud as possible otherwise we'll just be um, passengers in this whole process and uh, you know i mentioned yesterday that we'll sleepwalk ourselves into irrelevance and, and that's the danger. Suddenly we'll wake up one morning, there's been a regulation passed uh, at the UN uh, or, or by the IMO that uh, makes it just impossible to operate for 90% of the world fleet. And, 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 and someone will say, why didn't someone talk about this? Fine. And just for the uninitiated listening to the podcast, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, you're referring to the difference between container shipping, which has a very direct relationship with the consumer because they're shipping boxes of consumer goods, and perhaps other sectors like um, the tanker sector, where they're shipping oil on behalf of a, 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 an oil company, and the direct relationship with the consumer isn't that obvious. Yes, I mean, uh, right to a point. Uh, the, 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 I, talk, I talked about the larger liner companies, and liner companies predominantly are container uh, container base, but not necessarily. So any any large operation that goes from fixed point to point to point uh, on predetermined mm. routes, mm. picking up cargoes on the way, it is much easier for those companies which are more more aligned to a logistics setup to have bunkering facilities for ammonia, methanol, hydrogen, etc. in those specific ports and invest and have the means to invest mm. in those. Uh, whereas for the smaller tramp. Uh, operator operating sporadically around ports around the world mm. there just isn't that uh, that opportunity most of these liner companies are part of large logistic setups where they have rail they have aircraft they have haulage they have mm. everything else it's, it's it, uh, they have terminals and that superstructure lends itself to uh, uh, investing in and setting up bunkering facilities for these alternative fuels. So all I'm saying is we have to look at the wide, the wonderful, broad, the broad church of shipping and say, uh, what is it from a fuel perspective that satisfies that? And do we really believe that India, uh, ports in India, ports in China, ports in Africa, ports in South, uh, South America are really going to be open to uh, providing these sorts of alternative fuels for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years? And do we really believe in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years that engine technology is not going to be such that you can't you, you can't have a super scrubber to take out the carbon uh, before it, it is even emitted? I, I very, mm. very much doubt that. And I think it will be led by other industries, not the maritime industry, but other industries like the automotive in industry where the petrol and diesel engine is being committed to by uh, the, the, the very largest of the, the, the European manufacturers and also by the Japanese. 
Well, that also gets us to caption carbon and storage and its role in shipping. You mentioned that perhaps that's how fu uh, fossil fuels will maintain its market share when it comes to fuels in the, in the future. Um, what is your research and what's your view on how that will um, I'm always, I'm always, I can, I can give you my view, but it won't be a, a, an educated view. I mean, I think there's all sorts of uh, opportunities now we're reading about for um, carbon capture uh, and carbon shipment and mm. carbon burial and carbon recycling back into the ecosystem. Uh, and we're only at the start of that journey. Vessels are being designed to carry that carbon and, and pump it into the depths of the, uh, the Norwegian fjords or whatever safely in an environmentally friendly way. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure this will accelerate once people, hopefully, once people sort of look at the use of fossil fuels um, as a, a continuing possibility far into the future. Uh, you know, we, we do a lot of work, Columbia Group, in the Middle East. All of the energy majors in the, uh, in the Middle East, and indeed some of the energy majors in Europe, are recommitting to oil and gas. And indeed in the Middle East, they're seeing that the output uh, of, of oil and gas will multiply, will double, will treble in the next 20, 30 years. So no one is, what are they going to be doing with that uh, oil and gas? They're not all, somehow they're going to have to be burning it in an environmentally friendly way, in a carbon reduced way, in a hopefully a carbon zero way. But they're not ruling out the use of uh, these carbon, uh, fossil fuels uh, for the future. So, so this is quite a pragmatist view, but is it a helpful view? for the industry as it seeks decarbonisation pathways? Yes, it is, because it's, it's a, it's, it's a, um, a, a, a mini wake-up call, I think, because decarbonisation doesn't mean zero carbon. Uh, and and it, this industry has to transition itself gradually where there isn't an answer. No one has told uh, the, the asset owners of the future what will be the engine of the future, what will be the fuel of the future. And we have to invest in new tonnage now, uh, which has 20, 25 year time span. And we have to invest significant amounts in the propulsion units on that tonnage. The only viable uh, uh, propulsion units at the moment is your, your, your heavy fuels, be it low sulfur, high sulfur, your, uh, your, your LNG, and ammonia methanol being, being looked at and being explored, uh, and LNG. So very, f very few alternatives at the moment, electricity for, for, for certain specific short haul um, uh, situations, very, very few alternatives. Therefore, we have to commit significant investment into fossil fuel propelled ships. And, that, and that's, that's a reality. So let's try to steer the debate along that line. Let's try and steer the international debate along as to the acceptability of using fossil fuels in a, an environmentally friendly way, way, rather than slamming the door and suddenly finding ourselves with, you know, uh, nine-tenths nine of the world fleet as being unusable commercially or, or, or practically. Decarbonisation doesn't mean no fossil fuels. It means decarbonisation means using fossil fuels in an environmentally friendly, sustainable way, uh, in accordance with all of the ESG principles. If we can get that message across, and governments can get that message across through far more powerful lobbies than shipping ever will be, automotive, energy, etc., then we'll succeed. And I suspect you'll see over the next few years a lot more PR on this. Oil and gas aren't swear words. You know. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mark. That's right. Mark O'Neill, the chief executive of Columbia Group. Thank you very much, Michelle.
I'm here with Lois Sabrocki, who is the Chief Executive and President of International Seaways. Uh, she's joined us on day three of the Connecticut Maritime Association. And just starting off, Lois, um, got the best market conditions, I think, in your work, working memory, and certainly in, in mine and the people here with us from International Seaways. Um, how long do you think the good times are going to last? Well, uh, obvious question. Yeah, no, no, it's a good question. It's a very good question. And, you know, what I would say is that th this market across the entire space, uh, you know, all the way from MRs up to very large crew carriers is quite excellent. We haven't had any duration yet. Right. So, mm. you know, we're looking for, you know, in the mid 2000s, you know, you had a cycle that really uh, probably went on for four to five years. Right. You know, we are looking at a uh, very low ship supply and, you know, increasing oil demand. And so when you put all of that together, the contracts we think is that we could have a strong market for two to three years um, in our space. So, of course, the, the difference between this boom, quote unquote, and others is that there hasn't been a deluge of ordering of new tankers for, for a variety of problems or a variety of mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. What are the reasons why at International Seaways, for example, you're not contemplating taking such a step? Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, one is fabulous is that, you know, essentially in uh, the first half of the year here, we're adding $500 million worth of assets to our, our books. These are for decisions that were taken previously. So the three VLCCs that we're, we're taking delivery of that are dual fuel with LNG capability, and we uh, are executing a purchase option to buy back in a couple of Aframaxes that are um, on a below market basis, right? So these are decisions that, uh, you know, are setting up us nicely to, to be able to make our feet fleet a little bit more robust. We also did a major merger in the middle of 2021, which added a lot of growth to international seaways. But, you know, it is the case that it's always, what's the next thing on the horizon? Um, there's never a finish line and, you know, what is your next move in an environment like this where the asset values are strong and it looks to us like they could even stage another leg of that. You know, we, we look hard all the time at, okay, uh, very selective on, you know, are we going to order ships or going to buy vessels? We are in the process of executing a couple of long-term time charters in, multi-year time charters in. So, you know, we're always looking for those opportunities out there to take advantage of the market, um, you know, when you're in these kind of conditions. One of the comments that you made at an investor panel in New York earlier this week is that you think that charterers have to step up to the plate and back longer term um, deals in order for tanker owners, independent owners and operators to invest in new tonnage given the higher cost of uh, meeting new yes, reg decarbonization regulations. So, you know, to be clear, you know, I think as owners, you know, it's always our job to, you know, uh, present, you know, the opportunity and the potential for partnership. And, you know, I think that oil companies and charters will be there to move as the market moves forward. And, you know, there are additional regulatory hurdles that come into play and everyone in the in the tanker industry starts to realize that this 
you know, it's going to be critical for all of us to work together to meet the new challenges. Well, today, for example, the Fuel EU Maritime um, dire mm -hmm. Directive or, or legislation was passed, um, mandated 2% renewable fuels. Does that make, does that give you any extra clarity going forward? No. No? No. no. I mean, you know, clarity in, okay, you know, you have to have 2% uh, of renewable fuels, you know, okay, we need fuel supply, we need the fuels to be safe, we need those alternatives to be readily available at many ports all over the world, right? Mm. So I guess it is a bit of clarity, and then beyond that, it's, you know, uh, shipping are problem solvers. So as the regulations come into focus, then shipping will solve those solutions and, and a lot of the providers. You know, there are a lot of hurdles on the track for everybody to overcome, and it's going to take a lot of effort. Do you think that the International Maritime Organization, which is the United Nations body that yes. has responsibility for putting together the decarbonization regulations, do you think they need to step up to the plate as well? I mean, I, I feel like they they are. You know, I think it's incredibly challenging to try to deliver uh, consensus. And so IMO has put a trajectory into place for, you know, for shipping, for tanker owners. And I know they're keep, they keep working on, um, you know, evolving those regulations. So, you know, it, it, would it be more ideal if they were able to just move super quickly? But, they, you know, the, the, these UN agencies and the IMO, you know, they, they try to bring their constituents along, which I think is the right approach to trying to get to, to a place where we're solving the problem. Well, so while we wait for them to, to try and resolve mm -hmm. um, some of the problems here, we seem to have this ordering ordering impasse, um, especially in the tanker sector. Um, one of the other listed companies, uh, Robert Burke from Ridgeby Tankers, said at this same forum on Monday that um, he's not going to put any more sheep out to, to feed a growing pasture of grass. Right. Is, is that how you view it, that the, the pasture is growing and, and, you know, you're just, like, leaving the sheep the name, numbers they are? No, I don't. I, I you know, I, one of the things that Peter Evanson just said in, in the panel there, you know, people will say owners have um, gained discipline. XTK, by the way, just for Thank the, you. for our listeners. Yes. Um, owners have, uh, you know, he said, you know, I don't really believe they have discipline. And I would agree with him. In other words, you know, the market reacts to opportunities and openings and, uh, you know, at present, you know, the solution that we put to work on those uh, dual fuel VLCCs with the LNG capability, we had a partnership, we had a long-term charter for Shell, and there's benefit to them and there's benefit to ourselves in that deal. You know, if you go down to an MR-sized vessel, LNG dual fuel capability is not really a technical solution. So there's a lot of work yet to be done to for, for owners to understand when we make this 25-year decision. Okay, you know, what fuel will we be burning and, you know, how can we be prepared for the future? So it isn't, you know, the market forces, you, you, you have to believe in market forces and the market doesn't just say, oh, gee, look, the, 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 the rates will be, you know, $150,000 a day, but no one's going to build. You know, it's more that we all have to move forward technologically. We have to move forward with the innovation, with the availability of fuels, with the safety of the fuels, right? And to, to arrive at solutions. And so my final question is absolutely amazing market conditions. Um, a lot of tanker owners are in such a, a, a good place, a, an unprecedented place, really. Um, how much is accident? How much is design? 
Okay, so uh, you, you know what I would I again would just reiterate that you know uh, tankers suffered in a way that I have never seen in 30 years during COVID. The world went from consuming 100 million barrels a day to 85, and you know owners had like a little blip of of good fortunes because everybody was storing oil everywhere they could, right? Then you have to drain down those inventories before you know the market call comes again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, the fundamentals in, are in place for a healthy market with demand recovery, with that low level of supply. And, I, you know, I would simply say that, you know, um, it's a short period where we've had these good fortunes. And, you know, how much is by design and how much you as an owner, you try to do your very best to limit your downside, to make sure that you're going to be in a good situation with your balance sheet throughout the downside and then position yourself as, as best as you can for when that upside comes so that you have upside leverage to take advantage of. Well, it looks like you're not going to blow it like the container sector, certainly. I certainly hope. I hope that we will, will have success. Well, thank you very much for joining the Lois List podcast, Lois. Thank you, Michelle.